I am Alba Rodriguez Meira, a postdoctoral researcher at uh, Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine and Dana Farber Cancer Institute. You presented an award winning abstract at Ash. Uh, hold it in extremely high esteem, and I, I can understand why. You seem to be exploring the genome and exploring the, the way the transformation to malignancy takes place. Could you set the scene for me? Uh, first of all, you're using a system called single-cell multi-omics. I'd like you to say, explain to me how that is different from what we've had before. But first of all, will you tell me what you were trying to achieve with this study that you've been reporting? Yes, of course. So with the study that, uh, that we presented at ASH, what we aim to understand is how a relatively mild chronic malignancy that occurs through many years of disease evolution can suddenly evolve in a very aggressive type of acute myeloid leukemia. And this is driven by a gene which we know as P53 and is also known as, as the guardian of the genome. And it is important because this gene is uh, recurrently mutated in many cancer types. So but by understanding how this particular gene leads to a very aggressive type of leukemia in our system, we also aim to understand how this might work in other cancer types and also uh, try to develop therapeutic approaches to try to stop this progression before it happens. Mm -hmm. Now, the, this, the, the disease that you're looking at was myeloproliferative neoplasms. And of course, the aggressive cancer that this can go to is acute myeloid leukemia. So it's very severe to have something that goes from quite a gentle illness to one that's very severe, isn't it? Exactly. So that's why we thought it was an ideal model to try to understand this progression because um, myeloperiferative neoplasm is an extremely good model system for this because we know where the mutations are acquired in, in which hematopoietic compartment. And we can actually serially sample patients over many years of disease evolution to try to understand at each time point, how the progression occurs. And then of course, using our method, which is single cell multiomics, we can basically tease apart the tumor at each of these single time points and then try to understand what's the cellular composition, the genetic composition, the molecular composition, and also sometimes the functional uh, composition of these cells. The TP53 uh, gene is often called the guardian of the genome, so it does a good job normally. Why was this the focus of your attention here? Well, first of all, because in the context of myeloperiferative neoplasms and, and patients that end up transforming to acute myeloleukemia, um, this process occurs through the acquisition of a P53 mutation in around 30 to 50% of the cases. And also there's mouse models, of this is progression by which P53 induces this progression. It has a, an extremely high biological relevance in the context of progression to acute secondary, uh, to secondary acute myeloid leukemia. So it has, you know, a, and, and on top of that, it has an extremely high therapeutic relevance because it is universally associated with a very poor prognosis. Now, you were not only looking for mutations of uh, TP53, you were looking for things called multi-hit mutations. Can you explain what they are and why they're so important? Yeah, so something that we've discovered through our single-cell analysis, and it's been um, also reported in other malignancies, such as myelodysplastic syndromes, but the Elsa Bernard in the group of Eli Papa Emanuel at uh, MSKCC, 
is that the acquisition of a p53 heterozygous mutation doesn't really lead to malignancy or, or aggressive secondary acute myeloid leukemia. What we see um, at the acute phase of the disease versus the chronic phase of the disease, which is the myeloperiferative neoplasm, is that P53 should have two hits to lead to this aggressive disease. And the vast majority of the cells at the acute phase of the disease have acquired two different um, hits in P53. That can happen through the acquisition of two different mutations in P53, which is what we call biallelic inactivation, or acquisition of one point mutation in P53 and the deletion of the other allele. What is very interesting from our single cell analysis, um, and is uniquely enabled actually by our single cell analysis, is that in some patients, we actually detect both types of clone evolution. So we see some clones that have a biallelic inactivation, some clones that have deleted the P53 allele. And what that's telling us is that there's a very high selective pressure for the loss of the P53 wild type allele during transformation. Also importantly, P53 heterozygous cells don't seem to acquire leukemia custom cell properties, which are the cells that propagate the leukemia, only when we have a P53 multi-hit state, we do detect leukemic stem cell properties in these patients. So, so multi-hit basically means both uh, both of the pair of P53 genes, is it a pair, uh, are affected? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so the P53 uh, gene has two different alleles. And basically what we say is that in order, well, in all of the patients that have developed leukemia, the wild type form of P53 has been lost. That's what we, where we call a P53 multi-hit state. Mm-hmm. So now you have a, a system called single cell multi-omics. C- can you tell me what this is? And uh, first of all, could you describe how normal next generation sequencing is done and how this is different? Yeah, so uh, for example, in the diagnostic setting, um, next generation sequencing is uh, very well implemented at the moment, especially in the context of myeloperiferative neoplasms or acute myeloid leukemia. And how this is done is usually you take uh, the blood from a patient, but the entire uh, you know, piece of or sample of blood, you extract genomic DNA and then you sequence it at the bulk. It's what we call at the bulk level. So basically you sequence every single population that is in your blood. And then you measure what is the amount of mutations that that patient has and also what is the type of mutations that that patient has. Because depending on the type of mutations, there's different prognosis. So in next generation sequencing, you ask one question with one patient and you get one answer. Yes, exactly. And but something very important is that basically what you do is you take the whole blood. And in, in the blood, of course, there's many different cell types, including T cells, myeloid cells, B cells, you know, all sorts of, of, um, of immune cells. Um, so you're, you're sequencing pretty much everything, not only the tumor. You're sequencing absolutely everything that's there. And sometimes the sensitivity is not extremely high because you're mixing up all of the samples. So it is very difficult to understand what's going on because you're averaging everything that is in your blood. What we wanted to do with this study and what we think is important is that um, in myoperiferative neoplasms, we can actually retrospectively isolate cancerous themselves because we have... Uh, immunophenotypic markers, so basically cell surface markers that allow us to take these cells that express certain cell surface proteins and put them in, 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 a, in a plate and actually only sequence those cells. 
And on the top of that, we know that in, in a patient's um, tumor is actually very heterogeneous. There's genetically different populations of cells, there's different molecular properties and different functional uh, subtypes of cells. So to try to tease apart all of these layers, which, which actually have a very important role in, for example, therapeutic resistance, we need to be able to isolate single cells from a tumor and understand what are the genetic and molecular properties of single cells rather than averaging the sample and trying to understand average properties of the tumor. Right. So can you actually take a single cell with your single cell multi-omics method and do a complete genetic analysis on it to find out any mutations? Or is that impossibly difficult because there are so many of them? Yes. So with our single cell multiomic analysis, what we do is we select certain genetic mutations that we know are important for the development of myeloperiphery immunoplasms and acute myeloleukemia. So we are not studying the full genetic makeup of these cells, but only the ones that we are really interested in. Now, in other tumors, that might be very difficult, for example, in melanoma, because there's hundreds of mutations. The reason why myeloperiphery neoplasms is also a good system for us is that it's actually maybe tens of mutations, and we know which ones they are. So we can very confidently pick these mutations and study the specific drivers that we know have an important role in the development of these malignancies. And then at the same time, what we have is a full molecular readout, a totally unbiased molecular readout of these cells through the transcriptome. So basically we take the uh, RNA of these cells and we try, we understand or, or we can profile uh, pretty much every single transcript that is in these cells. And that is giving us a molecular readout from which we can also extrapolate functional properties of these cells. Normally in biological sciences or medical science, you have to have a very large number of patients to get a really refined answer. But in your study, it appears you only had a handful of patients and yet you got a very, very precise finding. Now, tell me why that's possible when you use multi-omics? Uh, I mean, it's a very different type of study, but, you know, the, the resolution is extremely, extremely high as compared to, for example, population level and next generation sequencing studies, right? So what we don't have as number of donors, we do have as number of cells. So you can consider that, for example, every one of our single cells is a unique biological individual in a way. Uh, we do have uh, over 22,000 cells. So that's the power of our analysis there. Mm. Well, what did you find when you did your study then on samples from patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms in relation to their development towards acute myeloid leukemia, for example? What we found is that uh, what we, we were describing before, that the tissue to screen multi-hit state is required and it is the one that is detected when patients transform. So basically what that's telling us is that the loss of the of the normal type of the P53 gene or what we call the P53 wild type allele is what's, what's uh, kind of driving transformation. We also found a high degree of karyotypic abnormalities, so chromosomal level alterations, which uh, when we put these cells in Xenograph models uh, to test leukemic stem cell properties, they preferentially expand. And what that's telling us is that the karyotypic abnormalities induced by the P53 mutation are actually required so that these 
cells acquire leukemic stem cell properties and they can expand in vivo. There's these two requirements that um, the presence of, well, three requirements, the presence of the presence of P53 mutations, the loss of the wild type allele, and the acquisition of chromosomal abnormalities that, that make these tumors so aggressive and uh, require functional stem cell, leukemic stem cell properties. Mm, I've got to ask you about the function of these genes, so the altered genes, the mutated mm. P53. Um, what was it and what are the insights you've gained into the malignant process? Yeah, so um, apart from the acquisition of these leukemic stem cell properties, there's something that have, well, there's two things that have been uniquely enabled about the progression of these tumors from our single cell analysis. The first one is that because we can actually analyze every single cell from these tumors, we can also detect remaining uh, cells that haven't acquired the mutation and that are still there. So there's a bit of normal hematopoiesis happening in these patients. But what we've seen is that this is extremely repressed, repressed P53 mutant cells. So it's not only that the P53 mutant cells expand because they have a competitive advantage, but they're actually also repressing normal hematopoiesis in these patients. And we, we now understand a bit better what, what are the processes that repress these normal hematopoietic stem cells. And this is, for example, it could be a new avenue of treatment because if we can understand the mechanisms that can de-repress these cells so they can compete with the tumor, again, that could be a way of restoring normal hematopoiesis. Right. The second major finding from, from our a study is uh, by using serial patient samples from patients that acquired a P53 mutation and evolved to the secondary acute myeloleukemia stage, and others that actually acquired a P53 mutation but did not develop acute myeloleukemia. And what we've seen is that in the patients that progress to the acute phase of the disease, there's a higher inflammatory milieu that we've identified with validated vivo that might be driving the competitive advantage of P53 mutant cells. And, you know, what's really interesting from this point is that we are studying patients that haven't progressed yet, but which the ones that are exposed to this high inflammatory milieu seem to have a much uh, higher predisposition to progress. So maybe we have a window of early therapeutic intervention in which we can actually try to prevent this inflammatory milieu so patients don't progress to the acute phase of the disease, which I think is extremely important. Now, looking at those two different findings, then are there any specific mechanisms or perhaps targets that you can look at that clinicians could think about using? Uh, first of all, the, the um, molecular ones that you talked about with the, the gene changes, but also the inflammatory ones. What are the ones that you might hang your hat on and, and put a treatment or uh, a procedure on that could make a big difference? Yeah, so of course, you know, this is very early days. And, and I think the power of this study is, is in pinpointing what are the pathways or mechanisms that might be involved in this progression. Uh, in order to go to an actual drug or to a clinical trial, this requires a lot more validation. So I do hope that in the coming years, we can set up um, further um, further preclinical and clinical trial validations of these findings. But it is unfortunately a bit too early to, for me to try to speculate about how this might, how this might uh, end up, you know, in a very specific way, how this might 
end up um, becoming clinically available. Mm. Um, I've got to ask you about some of the buzzwords used here. There's something called target sec. Why is this so important? So target sec is the single cell multiomic technology that we've used in which we can basically mutations, transcriptomes, and the proteins that are expressed in the in the surface of a cell, all of it from one single cell. So that's how we call our single cell multiomic technology. And that's a technology I've developed during my time as a PhD in the Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine. It sounds absolutely wonderful to me. Uh, but also you've been able to look into the triggers of expansion of leukemic stem cells, haven't you? That buildup is one of the key processes, is it, in causing an actual cancer? Yes, exactly. So by by uh, by using this technology, we've been able to detect all of these populations of cells that evolve throughout the years of progression and by teasing apart which ones are actually P53 mutants versus the ones that are not and comparing their molecular properties, we've, we've gained a much better understanding of what are the drivers of progression mm-hmm. towards this aggressive type of leukemia. Do you have any potential instruments for uh prognostication for prediction of therapy or or uh, we we have said there are possibilities of therapeutic targets but it's a bit early days so predicting the progress of the disease uh, do you have any ideas how we might do that by by looking for some of these markers yeah, so something that we've done in the study is that um, of the whole tumor population, we've detected a specific subpopulation of cells that expresses high amounts of leukemic stem cell markers. And when we take these genes that define, or these molecular signatures that define this small population of cells with high leukemic stem cell properties and applying it to big cohorts of patient samples, such as the BEAT AML dataset, which includes over 350 patients diagnosed with AML, we've seen that high expression of these leukemic stents markers is associated with a very poor prognosis. So actually insights derived from our unique single-cell multiomic analysis of this leukemic stem cell population does indeed have prognostic value in, in bigger cohorts of AML. And this is not necessarily associated with P53 mutations, but we seem to be able to identify patients that are going to perform badly. And are you able yet to follow the change of these different markers that you're now able to look at with the single cell multiomics method? Can you follow this and see how patients are adapting to different treatments? Because there are a variety of treatments being used on your patients. Do you have any ideas about this yet? Yeah, that could be a really interesting follow-up on the project, trying to understand how these different markers evolve, for example, upon chemotherapy treatment that these patients undergo. And that's actually a follow-up study that another student is carrying out in, in the mid laboratory in Oxford. Mm. Well, the uh, single-cell multiomics clearly brings a lot of hope, but what would you say to doctors, cancer doctors, Uh, at this point in time about the hopes for the future and what might come from this very exciting new technology? I do hope that gaining a much better uh, genetic and molecular understanding of the tumours and I do hope that the technology is eventually going to help us not only understand better these tumours but also start teasing apart uh, what uh, molecular targets we might be able to use so it can be 
implemented in the clinic sooner rather than later. Mm. Uh, one of the real issues that cancer doctors have to deal with is tumour heterogeneity. Have you been able to shed any light on that? Will you be able to shed light on that with these very refined techniques? Well, that's exactly what we are hoping for because um, the, the way we think about resolving tumour heterogeneity is that the biological entity of a tumour is, at the end of the day, a single cell. And now we can take each one of these biological entities and profile it individually and actually understand at the single cell level what's going on rather than doing the average as doing before. Um, so we do think that that teasing apart all of these intratumoral heterogeneity and importantly teasing apart all of these different layers of intratumoral heterogeneity because we are not only looking at genetics, we are not only looking at molecular, we are not only looking at proteins, we are looking at everything together. So we do think with this, uh, with this kind of information, we are really tackling to the best <laughs> that we can intratumoral heterogeneity.